Love it when I get started a little early. It means I can go well over an hour now. So, uh, Some of you think I'm joking. Uh, you'll find out. Well, we've been in our foundation series. I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, I hope that you're still reading through the Statement of Faith every week, kind of getting a whole picture of it and being reminded of what it says and kind of highlighting it. Hopefully, as you read through it, The more we go through their statement of faith now, stuff really starts to make sense to you, and it's kind of sinking in, it's going deeper, you understand what you're reading and what you're professing to believe. Um, I hope that's doing that for you. Uh, But to start this morning, I want to know, what do the words, I'm sorry, do for you? When you hear someone say, I'm sorry. Uh, For me, growing up, uh, we had a lot of manipulation in our house. So still to this day when someone says, I'm sorry, my first initial thought is, yeah, right. I think this is a tactic. And uh, honestly, this is something Jackie and I had to work on when we first got married because she is very quick to apologize because she hates conflict. And it's like her escape route is to just apologize, even if she doesn't know what she's, I'm I'm sorry. And she's just like, she's jumping out. And it, like, that's a trigger for me. So it does the exact opposite. It takes us further into conflict when she says she's sorry. Um, because it doesn't, it doesn't have that uh, effect. For some of you, hopefully, the words I sorry, I'm sorry, uh, are, are good for you to hear. Um, but do you find maybe that the words I'm sorry are easier to hear from other people and more difficult to hear from maybe people that you love, people that you're close to, that you have a deeper relationship with. For those of you who are married uh, or engaged, has it gotten easier or more difficult to say these words to your significant other? As the years have gone by, has it gotten easier or more difficult to say, I'm sorry? Well, it probably depends a lot on how your spouse or significant other reacts when you apologize, when you say the words, I'm sorry. Uh, If they react with understanding and compassion, then it's probably gotten easier. Uh, As you've apologized and said, I'm sorry, and they respond kindly to that, and and, and it, it creates a beautiful moment, well, you're probably more likely to do that because this produced good results. Uh, if they react with arrogance and go on further to explain just why you should be so sorry, then it's probably gotten more difficult. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't know anybody who would ever do that, but uh, some of us have a tendency to do that. To say, "Yeah, you should be sorry." Let me tell you all the reasons why. Uh, and uh, I. I mean, some of us can be a jerk sometimes. Uh, and not be compassionate and kind when hearing the words, I'm sorry. What about when someone says, I'm sorry, but you are pretty sure it's not genuine? You can tell it's a tactic. I don't know about you, but like I've already said, it's kind of a trigger for me, so it really sets me off when I can tell someone's just saying I'm sorry because they're like, yeah, I get that at this juncture of our conflict, this is what I'm obligated to say, so I'm just going to say it and we can move on. Uh, Or it's like to appease you. When someone is genuinely sorry, repentance follows. And as much as we do this, married couples or friends, family, uh, I can't imagine God's heart at the many times that we've said, oh, I'm sorry for my sin, God. And he watches us just go back and do the exact same thing time after time after time and after time. Today we're going to be discussing primarily two very important concepts of the Christian faith and the Christian life, and those are repentance and sanctification. These two, uh, the conversation say, I I love this conversation because a lot of what we've talked about, uh, we kind of have to wait till the end because it's, it's a lot of knowledge and we have to ask, okay, so what? But these thoughts, this is all about application. Repentance and sanctification, it's all about how we walk our Christian life. But before we jump into that, I want to recap a little of what we've discussed regarding the Holy Spirit. We've talked uh, about the Holy Spirit uh, multiple times through the series. Earlier in the series, we talked about the Holy Spirit being the most forgotten part of the Trinity. Uh, if you don't know a lot about the Holy Spirit 
aspect to the Trinity or maybe you've been in different sides of that conflict and you don't really know where you fall, I again would highly recommend Forgotten God by Francis Chan. Great book on the subject. Great way to dive into that and to start to get some basic knowledge of who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, And if you've read that and you're still hungry, talk to me. I've got many more resources I'd love to recommend to you as you go down that journey. Because in my experience in church life, uh, the majority of, uh, I would say, Christians uh, either shy away from the Holy Spirit or have a very unhealthy view of what the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not, doesn't gift us to give us pride and to make us look really flashy and showy and, and all of those things. He also wants to be engaged in every moment of our life. We don't just pick him up on Sundays and say, okay, Holy Spirit, make the sermon and the worship bearable. All right, okay, I'm going home. See you next Sunday. That's not what the Holy Spirit wants either. So because of the abuse and, and or neglect of the Holy Spirit by some, there are a lot of misconceptions about the role that the Holy Spirit should play in our lives. Uh, I, would, I would bet if I was a betting man that there are still some of us in this room that are like, eh, you know what, I hear what you're saying, but I'm still going to err on the side of caution and I'm just going to basically ignore the Holy Spirit. Because it, I don't want to get into that. It's, it might get ugly, it might get weird, it might get, you know, I'm not, I'm not into that. I'm not a Pentecostal, I'm not a charismatic, uh, and that's fine if you don't want to be that. But if you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit needs to be involved in every moment of your life. He empowers us to live. I honestly don't know how Christians expect to live the, the Christian life and not lean into the power of the Holy Spirit each and every day. Uh, last week, if you saw the, the title, the title of our sermon was Holy Spirit Dependency. That's, to me, it's basic Christian living. That's it's another way to say the same thing. We are completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. One undeniable role that the Holy Spirit plays is in our second birth, what we call salvation. It's what we discussed last week when we talked about our, how our spirit comes to life in us that when we're born, we're born spiritually dead. That's the condition of man. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, uh, we are born spiritually dead. And it's only upon salvation we become spiritually alive. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. With this role of the Holy Spirit in mind, understanding, uh, uh, hopefully a healthy understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and his role in our life, uh, I want to look at uh, first his role in salvation but we're going to look, uh, I want to read the whole, the whole statement of faith that hopefully we'll get through this morning, and then we're going to break it down into smaller pieces. It says, salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ for all men, and those who repent and believe in him are born again of the Holy Spirit, receive the gift of eternal life, and become the children of God. It is the will of God that each believer should be filled with the Holy Spirit and be sanctified wholly, being separated from sin and the world, and fully dedicated to the will of God, thereby receiving power for holy living and effective service. This is both a crisis and a progressive experience wrought in the life of the believer subsequent to conversion. So this is the section, the whole section of what we're going to cover this morning. But let's tackle that first part. Salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ for all men. And those who repent and believe in him are born again of the Holy Spirit, receive the gift of eternal life, and become the children of God. So they take this, one of the verses from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, first thing of note is who we believe salvation is through. We've talked about this in this series already, but it's worth repeating. We believe that we are saved by Jesus alone. That's it. There's no other way. There's no other path. There's no accidental salvation. It's not true. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we believe the Bible is true. So when Jesus says this, we believe it's saying that you can only come to salvation through Jesus. That's what we believe. We do not believe, as some have gone the way of believing, that everyone is going to heaven regardless who they worship. If you follow Christian circles, even some significant uh, believers got bought into this trap. If you don't know, uh, one of my favorite authors ever, C.S. Lewis, actually bought into this trap for a while and then realized that it's garbage. And so he stopped believing that. Some believe that you go to heaven if you don't believe anything at all. It doesn't matter if, you even, if you're an atheist that you're going to go to heaven because like we discussed, the reason we believe that you must come to salvation through Jesus because that would not be justice otherwise. If some want to reject Jesus' offer to pay for their sin and they choose to pay for it themselves and say, no, I'm good, I'll do it on my own, a just God would not force them to receive the gift he is offering. If you're a parent or uh, if you've ever tried to give someone a gift and they said, no, nah, I'm good, and you tried to force them to take that, no one's going to go, oh, that's so sweet. What a nice person. They're going to be, what a jerk. Like, just deal with it. They don't want your gift. And that's what we do. I was reading another article this week about how God must be a hateful God to send people to hell. And it's like, man, don't you get it? He has provided this amazing gift, and only by us choosing that we're going to do it on our own do we enter hell. The second part of this statement is the idea of repentance. Most of us are probably familiar with this word in some way. You've heard the term repentance if you've been in the church for a little while. Some might even know that the word repentance means to return or turn. Uh, I know that is the primary definition I've always heard in regards to uh, repentance, but that's actually only the definition to the Hebrew word that's used for repent. There's actually no word in Hebrew that uh, is directly translated as repent. Uh, it's an idea that means to return or to turn back or to go back. Um, but the Greek word uh, that is more accurate, that's, that's usually translated as repent, it's more it's defined as to radically change one's thinking. That's what repentance means, to radically change one's thinking. See, repentance isn't about realizing that we're a sinner and start feeling bad about sin and then just praying a prayer to make everything better. So I think at times the church has, has missed the mark by promoting this kind of idea that, well, repentance, you need, to, you, know, you need to believe and repent, and that means feel bad about your sin, pray a prayer, and then just go about your life. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who haven't gone to church in their you know, adult life, have no interest in God, no fruit whatsoever, but if you ask them, they say, oh, yeah, I, pr I prayed a prayer one day when I was in church or at this meeting or wherever it was, and, and so I'm good. And they think they're good because they've prayed this prayer. And now I get it that that's not all on the church's fault, but at times we have pushed this idea. You just need to pray the prayer. You need to pray the prayer. And we really push, and, 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 and we kind of guilt people into praying this, or we try to make them feel really, really bad, and we get them in an emotional state where they'll pray a prayer, and there's nothing that happens afterward, as if, as if the praying the prayer is what it's all about. Like, that's the pinnacle of repentance, and it's simply not. It isn't it's also not just stopping a behavior and moving forward in life as if it never happened. It's not just about like, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to stop doing that, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm good now. That's not repentance. Turning and going the other way is good, but it's not the totality of what repentance is. 
I think if you read the different stories of repentance in the Bible, you look at the different instances of repentance, I think there are three things I want to talk about this morning I want to highlight. I know there are going to be other aspects of repentance that are included, but I want to talk about three this morning that for genuine repentance. First, mourning over the sin. There needs to be actual mourning over our sin. We need to look at our sin and not just feel bad about it, but mourn over it. Like, man, I'm guilty of that. That hurt the heart of Jesus. And that possibly whatever the sin is, it hurt other people. There should be actual mourning. Without mourning, it's just behavior modification. And again, this is my opinion where we've gone wrong in the church is we just get people to feel bad about it. We get them to acknowledge it's not acceptable behavior, and they stop doing it as if like, oh, okay, you know what? Well, in this church, in this circle, this group of people, that's a bad behavior, so I'm just going to stop doing it. There's no mourning. There's no feeling the, the weight of the sin. It's just to fit in this group, I can't do that, at least where they can see it. And that has been the case in many churches. For many people that go to church, they live a different life outside the church than inside the church because they've never mourned over their sin. They just decided to fit in in this place, in this group, at this time. This is how I have to act. Romans 12, 9 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. This word abhor uh, look it up. Study this word. It, it means to like to hate something so much it makes you physically ill. It's like vegetables. They make me physically no, that's worse than that. Wor- I, I know, I know. It doesn't sound like that's possible, but worse than even vegetables. That's what we're to look at our sin. It should make. It should bother us. Like when you think back to the things that you've done, the things that, that Satan allowed you and led you into, it should make you angry. You should abhor the sin of our past. We shouldn't look at it and go, oh man, it used to be really fun. I wish I could do that in this group, but oh well, as long as I'm going to that church, I can't do that. Maybe I'll find a church that finds, finds that acceptable. And I promise you, you don't even have to leave Dubois before. You can find a church that whatever sin you want, they'll find it acceptable. It'll be okay. And that's what we've gone into now. We just find a church, find a group of people that will allow us in with that sin. And that's just not okay. When the Holy Spirit puts his finger on a sin, we should, there should be mourning over that sin. That's why we should rely on the Holy Spirit for conviction. Because when he does it, it's powerful. That's why we shouldn't rely just on judgy church people and dirty looks for behavior modification. It doesn't work. We should allow the Holy Spirit to lead someone down a path where they get to the place of abhorring their sin, and they never want to go back because it makes them physically ill to think about going back. We all have that, probably. I would guess, especially if you were saved a little bit later in life, you think about going back and doing some of the things you used to do. It'll make you physically ill to think about, what if I just up and tomorrow decided to go back? You wouldn't be able to do it. You don't know the way back. You couldn't. That's the abhorring part of sin. And all of our sin, we should get to that place where it's, it's gross, it's disgusting to us. That's the first part. The second part of repentance is confessing the wrong to the parties who were wronged. Genuine repentance will lead us to confession and usually back to those we've wronged. There are, granted, there are going to be instances where confession is between you and God and maybe a trusted person in Christ that, that you know uh, and, and trust very well. You can confess that to them. It's not possible sometimes to go back to the person and confess it, but confession must be made. You cannot have also genuine confession without humility. Have you ever had someone try to confess something to you and you could tell like there was no humility to it? There was almost arrogance. I've been there in the church con- confronting people in their sin. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I, you know, I'm sorry, yeah, I did that. That's, that's not confession. But genuine confession, confessing things before the Lord, when, when we get to the place of abhorring our sin, confession looks very different. 
and there's humility in it. There's a, a, an acknowledgement that we are weak and we have failed. That we, in this battle between the flesh and the spirit, we gave in to the flesh. We allowed the flesh to win that battle. And we shouldn't have because we're no longer subject to the flesh. That when the flesh wins the battle, that's us allowing it to. The spirit is stronger. And if we feed the spirit more, then it should win. And so there should be humility in our confession. This can also bring great healing to those that we've wronged. To acknowledge that our behavior was wrong. Have you ever had somebody acknowledge some past behavior that you always like, knew was wrong, but they never acknowledged it? But when they do, man, the healing power of that, to hear someone who has wronged you say, yeah, you know what? It was wrong of me to have done that. The healing that can happen there. Half repentance usually seeks to rationalize this step away because we don't want to suffer the consequences of our wrong actions. And so we convince ourselves like, oh, it's dredging up the past. It's just going to cause more problems. It's just going to cause more drama. So I'm not going to say anything. Why? We don't want to be humble. We don't want to admit we failed to someone. And so we rationalize it away and say, oh, it's just going to cause more hurt. than you know, There's no, no reason to, to open old wounds. That saying that many of us have used just to get out of the humiliating experience of repenting to someone that we have deeply hurt. It's tough. If you've ever been there, it's not easy to repent. And sometimes the consequences are great when we actually and genuinely repent. But it's a step of true repentance. Confession must be made. The third, restitution is made. Another step to genuine repentance seeks to, within our power, make right the wrong that we created. You, some of us probably uh, know the story of Zacchaeus. What happens after Zacchaeus realizes the error of his ways? Does he just go, oh well, I guess I'm rich now. I'll just live it for Jesus. He goes back and he tries to repay and, and pay extra to people he has wronged. He goes back to make restitution for the wrongs that he has committed. Just because we're forgiven does not mean that we are exempt from the consequences of our sin. I, I've talked to believers genuinely confused why God would force them or make them deal with the consequences of their sin when they were really sorry. Like, it doesn't work that way. Just because you're sorry doesn't mean you don't have to still face the consequences of your sin. And sometimes we have to walk that road. And there's more humility in that road. And when you get to the other side of it, you are always closer to Jesus. Because He finds us in that humble, dirty place where we walk out repentance and we turn from it we go back, we confess, we acknowledge the hurt that we've made to other people, and we mourn. We're in a, in a period of mourning over our sin, and we seek to make restitution. Man, it, it is those places where we will grow with the Lord, and He will meet us, and it'll be beautiful. It's ugly, and it's, it's difficult, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I've met anybody that always looks forward to going into that, but it's, it, God will always meet us there. And I want us to know and be clear that repentance isn't important just at salvation. For some of us, that's the last time we walked out any decent repentance, any genuine repentance. We felt sorry about our sin when we came to know Jesus, and there was that, that short period of time where we tried to confess to people that we've wronged when we were uh, an unbeliever, and we, we tried to make that restitution. We went through the steps. We, we, you know, we did the humble thing, and now we're good, and we feel like we're good. And at best, we might say we're sorry. Oh, I'm sorry at times, but we don't continually walk that path of repentance it's one of the things we talk about with communion every month, that this should be something we're really well-versed at, that we know how to walk in repentance. We as Christians should be experts at repentance because we should constantly walk through that, acknowledging how weak we are, how in need of Jesus and the Holy Spirit we are as we constantly are faced with the weakness of our flesh.
The last point I want to touch on in this statement is upon salvation, we became children of God. Have you ever processed what that means? To be children of God, sons and daughters of God. It's what verse 7 is saying in the Titus 3 passage we just read. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul is clearly stating this, that we are heirs, but he says it again in Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What do heirs do? What does it mean to be an heir? It means you inherit something. That's what being an heir is. You inherit. We inherit the kingdom of God as fellow heirs with Christ. We went from poor, destitute sinners destined for hell without hope, inheriting nothing. I mean, think about your condition before Christ. We had nothing. We were as if children without a parent Without family, we inherit nothing to be then co-heirs with Christ, inheriting a kingdom beyond value, living eternally in the presence of God. What an amazing God we serve. And guess what? We did nothing to earn that. Just as if we were a child with no family, no connections, no money, no material possessions, and someone decided to adopt us, bring us into their family, and then say, I want you to know you are as much an heir as our blood children. That's what Jesus did for us. We became heirs along with Christ, and we now inherit the kingdom of God. It's amazing. It should wake you up in the morning with joy in your heart to know that there will be a day you enter heaven and you don't enter it as you know, the, the poorest member of society. You enter it as an heir. You inherit the kingdom of God. What a blessing it is to be his. Moving on in our statement of faith, the next statement says, it is the will of God that each believer should be filled with the Holy Spirit and be sanctified wholly. So there are two really important parts or points in this statement. Each believer should be filled with the Holy Spirit, and each believer should be sanctified holy. Being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't just for the elite of the Christian faith. Uh, another misconception, I think, in regards to the Holy Spirit is to think, well, yeah, I mean, I get that the pastor or the missionaries or that, you know, the random elder or deaconess, you know, they might be filled with God because they're so close to him, but that's not for the average churchgoer. You know, we look at our lives, we know how messed up we are, we know how sinful we are, and we think, well, that can't be for me. I'm too messed up to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I'm just too, too broken to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's simply not true. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is something for every single believer. Or else there wouldn't be a command. And, and notice the command here in Ephesians 5.18. It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice that it doesn't say, but become the best believer in your church, and then you, maybe you can be filled with the Spirit. It doesn't say get your whole life together, get rid of all that sin, and get, get to basically a perfect position, and then you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a simple command. Be filled. And here's the, the, the reality of it is you can be filled with the Spirit the moment of salvation when you're still really messed up and you've still got tons of sin in your life and you can be filled the next week, the next month, the next year, 10 years later, 100 years later, whatever that looks like. You can still be filled with the Spirit. There's no person too young, too old to be filled with the Spirit or it wouldn't be a command. It's a command of God to be filled with the Spirit. Just as being drunk means that we have less control 
and we do things that we wouldn't normally do, being filled with the Spirit is an emptying of ourselves and our desires and being led by the Holy Spirit to do what He desires. We lose control, we give up control, and we do things that we wouldn't normally do. Again, that's why it puts this in two different places. Don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. They both have similar uh, reactions and similar uh, things that happen when we're drunk and when we're filled with the Spirit. Only one leads to righteousness and one does not so much at all. That's why we're commanded not to do it. But when we're filled with the Spirit, God will use you to do things way beyond your ability, way beyond uh, your control, and certainly well beyond your area of comfortability because it's Him in control in that moment, not us. We're also called to the process of sanctification, to be sanctified holy. This comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.23. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what it means to sanctify something? It means to set it apart for a specific purpose. When something is sanctified, I I know growing up, uh, I don't think people in my generation do this nearly as much, but uh, we probably all had at least one family member that had the china, the fancy plates. Some of you still have them. I know you do, and they're in this cupboard. Uh, Do you use those to like feed your pets or to feed your children. I know we were never good enough to have the china, which was a smart move because we would have broken it. Uh, It was set apart. It was for special occasions for Thanksgiving or for Christmas or for Easter. Uh, And that's the only time you got it out because it was set apart. It was treated differently. A lot of china you had that you couldn't just throw it in the dishwasher. You had to wash it by hand. You had to dry it and you had to take care of it. That's being sanctified. It's being set apart for a special purpose. If your grandma walked in and you were feeding your dog out of one of her china bowls, you probably aren't here to hear my sermon because you died. Uh, Why? Because it was set apart. You can't use that bowl for that. That's not for the dog. That's for company. That's for guests. That's for special occasions. We have been set apart like that. We're not to be used like the world and in the world stuff. We are sanctified, set apart. Next part of the statement of faith says, being separated from sin and the world and fully dedicated to the will of God, thereby receiving power for holy living and effective service. Anybody here feel like they have been completely separated from sin and fully dedicated to the will of God, like you're done? No? Shocker. Because sometimes we act like it, don't we? No, we're all still in this process. And I want you to know, if you don't already know this, uh, just because you think you're further along the process doesn't make it any better than somebody who's just starting the process. We're all in process. And we're working to become fully sanctified, wholly sanctified, as our statement of faith says. And I want to be clear, the the process of sanctification, this isn't the process of earning salvation, as some think it is, that, well, I'm going to get sanctified and then I'll really deserve to be a Christian. I'll really deserve to be uh, saved. I'll really deserve to be filled with the Spirit. Nobody deserves to be filled with the Spirit of God. Man, we are such unholy vessels who mess up constantly. And yet he will because he loves us and he's that good. And it's when we give our life, our control over to him that we can be filled. But no, this isn't the process of earning salvation. This isn't the process of of trying to pay Jesus back. There's no obligation in sanctification. The, The realities of what Christ did, of where we were, of the fact that we're now co heirs, these are all truths that should compel us that we should want to use the illustration before like when i do something for my wife i i I hope 
Uh, I don't feel obligated to be nice to her, to do nice things for her, to, to uh, you know, wash the dishes or whatever, uh, to, to buy her something nice. Like, I get excited to do that. I, you know, our anniversary is coming up, and, and I already bought her a gift, and I'm excited to give it to her. I don't feel, oh, I have to buy her something or else she won't, you know, stop begging me about it or, or get on my back about it. If that's where you're at in your marriage, come talk to me. But uh, I want to do things because I know it, it brings her joy. It makes her happy. That's should be our life with Christ, that we're compelled, we want to, we want to bring the Lord joy. We want to bring him glory and honor through our lives. That's the process of sanctification. It's not possible to earn salvation, so stop trying. This is the process of becoming more like Christ so that we can be used by God to advance his kingdom. It's what Acts 1.8 is talking about when it refers to the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This doesn't happen all at once. Uh, We've different times We've talked through the different parts of the Holy Spirit. There's the indwelling, that's the salvation part. There's the sealing that the Holy Spirit does. Yes, the Holy Spirit comes in, uh, but uh, using the illustration, uh, people have you know, taken like a big jug and a bunch of rocks in it and you fill it with water till it's overflowing and you say, is it full? Yes, obviously it's full. Then you start to pull a couple rocks out and all of a sudden it's not so full anymore. That's the process of sanctification. Each rock being the sin in our life. And so when, when the Holy Spirit removes sin from our life, all of a sudden we're not so full anymore. We can get filled further with the Spirit. And then he removes more sin and we can be filled further and more fully until there's less sin and more Jesus, more Spirit being filling us in any one moment. That's the process of sanctification. It also says uh, in our statement of faith, this is both a crisis and a progressive experience wrought in the life of the believer subsequent to conversion. You can't be sanctified before you're a Christian. It can't happen that way. You, you can't be set apart before you're created. Uh, so you, this is a subsequent to conversion after you've become a Christian. And this comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who, have, who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we who no longer would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that, that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in, in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Our our statement of faith says that this process is a both crisis and progressive. What does that mean? Uh, We go over this in our membership class because it's a tough concept to understand. Most people read that and they say, cool, yeah, and they move on and they have no idea what it means. 
What does it mean that sanctification is both a crisis and progressive experience? Well, it means that there are times in our Christian walk, there should certainly, if you've not had at least what I would consider, uh, now I'm I'm mixing a little bit of Alliance theology with Bruce theology. So uh, the Alliance theology says that uh, there's the crisis moment. Some believe that there's the one crisis moment. Uh, I've been a Christian long enough to say, I don't know if it's just because I'm a knucklehead, but I have had multiple crisis moments with Jesus. But there's that first crisis moment where you come to know Jesus and you get really excited and, and you start to live this life out. And you come to a moment where you realize, I cannot do this on my own. I'm trying to live righteously. I've gone back to some of my sins. I've gotten involved in things I used to get involved in, and, but now they make me sick to my stomach. and I don't want to do them anymore, but I'm, I'm trying to live these two different dual lives, and it's not working, and we come to this moment of brokenness where we now, and, and many people have said, there's, we ask Jesus as our Savior, and then there's that moment where we ask him as our Lord. And we ask him, okay, now you be in control and you have everything, and help me do this. That's that first crisis moment where Jesus and the Holy Spirit empowers us to actually begin to live, and we we start to realize, wow, I can't live the Christian life on my power. I can't be patient enough. I can't be loving enough. I can't stop sinning long enough to be the righteous believer I want to be, and we ask Jesus to help us. That's that initial crisis. Now, for me, I've gone to multiple crisis moments where I have sin in my life, and I know that God has put his finger on it. He's trying to tell me to get rid of it, and I'm trying to on my own power, and I have to get to that point where uh, it feels like Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and saying, listen, this relationship can go no further until you get rid of this. And there's this moment of brokenness and there's a season of repentance uh, and it's, a, it's been beautiful, it's ugly and it's difficult and I hate it, but I also love it because it's in those moments I, get so, I feel so much the power and the presence of God. And if you've not had those moments, then there's a good chance that God is still trying to remove something from your life that you have said no to so long that you no longer hear his voice and you barely feel his prompting any longer because he's a gentle God. He's not gonna force you to do what he is calling you to do. But just like that illustration of the jug with water and rocks in it, we, if you've been Christian long enough, you realize I can't get those rocks out myself. I can't remove this sin from my life because I, I make these big declarations and I try on my own power to remove this sin from my life. And a week later, there I am, back to it. Or 10 years later, I find myself back in my sin. How did that happen? Well, I tried to remove the rock myself. And so we have to lean into the Holy Spirit and ask him, Holy Spirit, I cannot do this. This sin, it's plaguing me. I now abhor this sin. I hate it. I don't want it in my life. And we lean into the power of the Holy Spirit and we trust God to remove that sin from our life. And there's that freeing moment. And it will always be followed by repentance when we have those moments, because it's required. We must walk the path of repentance, and that's when we get that healing and that beautiful season. That's the crisis part of sanctification. There will be moments where, especially early in our Christian walk, where there are just these mountains of sin that cannot be moved by our own power, and we need to lean into the Holy Spirit for it. Hopefully, as we grow, I think I've gotten better at leaning into the Holy Spirit earlier in that process before it's like him dragging me through, you know, the sand and, and trying to get me somewhere uh, and, and probably, you know, doing a lot of face palming uh, as, as he tries to lead me. But there's also a progressive part of sanctification. There's the day-by-day-by-day day stuff. And I, I, I know there's a good reason why Jesus uses marriage as an illustration of our relationship with him very often because just like in marriage, and like I just said, there's like our anniversaries coming up. Some of us are into Valentine's Day stuff or into birthdays and Christmas. Like There's those big moments where you make these big gestures of love, I would say, are like the crisis moments. But then there's the progressive. If that's the only time I ever told my wife I love her and it's the only time I talked to her all year, that would not be a very significant relationship. That would be weird and unhealthy. 
And so there has to be progressive parts of our love or progressive parts of sanctification where each and every day we're growing closer and closer to Jesus, where we're in the Word of God, we're worshiping, we're fellowshipping with people. I, I think for me, one of the, the areas that we give up the easiest, where most of us are probably pretty good, we'll pick up our Bibles, we'll do that, we'll worship, uh, we'll do other things, but fellowshipping with other believers, being around other Christians on a regular basis, opening up our lives to them, that's part of the progressive part of sanctification, that we would share our life with other believers and allow them to speak into things, ask for counsel. If, if I don't have guys that I can talk to and, and wrestle things through with, then I'm not going to grow that much because I'm going to grow based on my own understanding and my perspective on things. And so we need that uh, community of believers. That's why in the New Testament so often the, the New Testament talks about community, oneness, unity. It's necessary for the process of sanctification. If this is the majority of your Christian fellowship, your progressive part of sanctification is probably very limited because you're not growing in that capacity. You're not having other people speak into your life. If you are if you just in a regular job, if you think you're the expert and you don't take any input from anybody else, you're probably not going to get a whole lot better at it. You'll get a little bit better as you go through, but having someone else speak into it and offer suggestions, someone from the outside and, and asking for advice, I know I've always, that's the employee I want, is someone that's going to be teachable and want to learn, want to grow, allow others to speak into it, good with ideas. That's how we should be as believers in community. But there is that progressive. We... we uh, talked a few years ago, we went through the Sacred Pathway stuff. And if you, another book I would highly recommend is the book Sacred Pathways. It talks about the different ways we connect with God. And if you're not doing those things, if you're not connecting with God in the ways that you genuinely connect with Him on a regular basis, you're probably not growing much progressively. If we only rely on the crisis moments to grow as a Christian, we will be a very stunted Christian. But if we day daily engage in disciplines that draw us close to God and, and help us interact with him and also in fully engage those crisis moments and the repentance process man we will grow exponentially further than we ever thought we could with Jesus he will take us places we never thought possible so like we have finished most of our sermons and we will finish all of our sermons in this series we have to ask ourselves so what so what does this mean for me well, I have a couple questions that hopefully you are willing to wrestle with this week. Are there any areas in your life where genuine repentance needs to be walked out? Even if it's something that you forgot about, you put to the side, but in this sermon, God brought it back to your mind and said, hey, remember this? You never walked that repentance out. You stopped halfway. You never actually went to make amends. You never went and confessed that. You just stopped doing it or you stopped the behavior or you stopped hurting that person and you just walked away from it. You never went back. Are there areas where genuine repentance needs to be walked out? What areas of your life are in need of sanctification? Are there aspects of your life, the way you talk, the way you interact, your online presence, are there things that need sanctified more fully? If Jesus were to be with you in that moment, would you be good with that? The way you, I don't know, talk to your coworkers or talk to your family or uh, the comments you leave on Facebook or social media or I don't know, the things you look at on the internet. Is Jesus good with that stuff? Or does it need to be sanctified more fully? Are you in a progressive chapter or a crisis chapter of your walk with Jesus? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. But maybe wrestle with that question. Am I, am I in that chapter where I'm just growing daily with him? Or am I in that place? Maybe for the last 30 years, I've been in a crisis moment of my faith. I haven't heard from God. I feel he's very distant from me. I feel like uh, I used to be really close and very passionate with God, and I just haven't felt that for so long. There's a good chance you've existed in a crisis moment with God for years because he's still waiting for you to give that thing up that he put on your heart so long ago and you just stubbornly refused to submit 
Submission is an absolute necessity in our walk with Jesus, but he will not force us. He will make it evident and clear and unquestionable when he wants to remove something from our life, but it's our choice whether we'll lean into him or not. What do you do progressively to sanctify your life to that of Christ? What are your regular disciplines that you have that that bring you close to Jesus on a daily basis? How much time do you invest in that? And then for me, the biggest question, the last question I'll ask you this morning, and I want you to actually seriously, if you're a note taker, take notes on it. What step will you take this week in the area of repentance and or sanctification? What has Jesus put on your heart this morning? Make a commitment to do something this week with that. Don't walk out of here and go, oh, that was a great sermon. Maybe I'll do something with that, and you never do anything with it. That's useless. But make a commitment. If God's put something on your heart, whether it's a path of repentance that you need to walk or an area of sanctification that you need to to dive into, a conversation you need to have, fellowship that you've been lacking, don't go a week without making a decision on that. So what are you gonna do this week in the area of repentance and or sanctification? I hope God has led you to something. I know, again, I'm always preaching these sermons first to myself, so there's a bunch of stuff I gotta do. Commitments I've made to myself and to God. But what, where is God going to take you this week with this? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you constantly walk with us. That you so patiently love us. Lord, I thank you, regardless of our commitment at times, our, our seriousness in our walk with you, you love us and you journey with us and you're always right there when we turn to you in repentance. Lord, I pray for some of us who have areas that we have been called to repent in and we have stubbornly refused to do so. We've given you excuse after excuse about how that person doesn't deserve it and how all the things that we have decided excuse us from it. Holy Spirit, would you convict us to enter into that process? Give us wisdom and discernment on how to engage the process of repentance in our life and in the scenarios or situations you've put on our hearts. Lord, for those who have been in a crisis moment of their sanctification for a very long time, Lord, would you bring back to their mind that thing which has halted and stunted their growth with you? Holy Spirit, would you make it clear what needs to happen for you to remove that from their life that they could begin again, that passionate journey with you, that closeness, that hearing your voice and hearing a song and being brought to tears and being moved so powerfully by your Spirit that we should all have. Lord, would you light that fire again in their life? Lord, for each and every one of us, would we daily be growing with you Would you make it clear what you've called us to do this week in the areas of repentance and sanctification and would we be faithful with those things? Thank you that you love us and that you are willing to walk with us as many times as we fall and mess up and get it wrong. Would you walk with us in this? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week.